1: Hello everyone, and welcome to Grey History. If the last episode was an episode dedicated to how the Estates General got off to a terrible start, well then this episode will be dedicated to how the Estates General came to a terribly quick end. Titled The National Assembly, this episode will be dedicated to just that. The failure of the Estates General and its replacement with an upstart national body. Whether the government would allow that replacement was another matter entirely. So, without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History, Episode Ten The National Assembly. They say a week is a long time in politics. So I ask, what about a month? I'd be willing to wager that a month would be considered a very long time in politics, especially if one's nation was on the brink of bankruptcy and revolution. A very long time to accomplish absolutely nothing. For that is what the Estates-General had achieved. By June 1789, the Estates-General had been meeting for a month. It had been deadlocked for a month. It had been disappointing the people, ignoring the bankruptcy, fostering greater unrest throughout the nation by its inaction for almost one month. One month of accomplishing absolutely nothing. Deadlock reigned supreme. The second and third orders were at an impasse, one that looked unbridgeable. The nobility, dominated by conservative nobles, refused to meet as one with the commons and the Commons, led by two factions, the Dauphine Delegates and the Brenton Club, refused to do anything other than verify its members in conjunction with the other two orders. The First Estate, for its part, was caught somewhere in the middle. Bishops and common clergymen argued bitterly on how to address the impasse, but the debate within the First Order was in many ways just a microcosm of the debate engulfing the entire Estates General. While the representatives of the Church may have looked increasingly divided and disunited, it was far from clear if the internal divisions of the churchmen would escalate into outright schism. Deadlock reigned supreme, and it looked set to continue. That is, until the 3rd of June. On the 3rd of June 1789, a new element was added to the equation. An element that had the potential to break the stalemate at Versailles. The deputies of Paris finally arrived. Now... I'm not quite sure what songs were playing on the tour bus as the Paris deputies made their way to Versailles. Maybe it was Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. Maybe it was Let's Get It Started by the Black Eyed Peas. Maybe it was just Fireworks by Katy Perry. Who knows? But what I do know is that once the Parisian deputies arrived, the Estates General suddenly did have fun and games. It did get started and the end result was cannons going boom, boom, boom. You may remember that the Parisian deputies were always a potential faction within the commons that could have set the agenda. This was because Paris was the home to countless political agitators, discontented masses, and organised centres of resistance. And this meant that the odds were that the city would elect individuals with an unashamedly progressive agenda. And the city of Paris did not disappoint. The Parisian delegation, once finally elected was full of individuals who were eager to push on with the revolution and adopt some pretty hardball tactics to get it done. Upon arriving in Versailles, the new arrivals wasted no time in making their presence known. On the day of their arrival, the astronomer jean Sylvain Bailly was promptly elected the Dean of the Third Estate, which at this point in time was calling itself the Commons. But Bailly would not be the only respected individual to join the Commons on the 3rd of June. He was accompanied by a man with a national, in fact international reputation, a priest who had been elected as a delegate for the Third Estate. That man was named Abbé Siez, and that's a name you should remember. Abbé Siez was not necessarily destined for the influential life he would lead. As a boy, Siez wanted to join the army, yet found himself embracing a life within the church instead. A man of intellect and ambition, he experienced firsthand the restrictions placed on his talent within the church due to his common folk ancestry. As the ministries of Cologne and Brienne fell apart, Siez started to become more political. Dipping his toe into politics, Siez was a member of a club known as the Society of 30. The Society was founded in November 1788 and hosted by DuPort, one of the key radical nobles of the Paris Parlement. Its membership comprised of liberally-minded nobles and intellectual bourgeoisie. Siez, and indeed many members of the club, were active in writing political publications, and it was from his writing that he had gained his international reputation. In January, as bread prices continued to rise, as firewood ran scarce, as people starved, and as the nobility and the bourgeoisie fought in the streets over how deputies should be elected, Siez penned a pamphlet which would secure his place in history. Indeed, it was a document that changed the world. Titled, What is the Third Estate? It is debatably one of, if not the most influential and most important of all political pamphlets of 1789. In it, he makes clear that the Third Estate is the nation, and as such, sovereignty lies with its representatives. Upon reading it, Mirabeau claimed, Ah, so there is at least one man left in France. The contents required significant backbone. It can be summarised with just a key excerpt. It's beginning. What is the third estate? Everything. What has it been until now in the political order? Nothing. What does it want to be? Something. And so, as Cies arrived at Versailles, the last man in France, according to Mirabeau, he was intent on making the Third Estate something. A week after his arrival, Sies was at a minimum doing something. Using his clout within the Commons and receiving the support of the Brenton Club, Sies marshaled the Third's delegation into battle with the two privileged orders. Sies proposed a way to break the deadlock that had gripped Versailles for more than a month, but his proposal was the very definition of radical. The Commons would inform the other two orders that in two days' time, they would begin verification by themselves. But they would not just verify themselves, they would verify everyone. Should the delegates of the first and second estate refuse to attend, they would be marked as absent, and proceedings would continue without them. This was an extraordinary step. The third estate was going rogue. Siez and the Commons were essentially usurping power they did not have, the power to unilaterally verify all of the Estates General's delegates, and they were daring anyone who opposed them to stop them from doing just that. Importantly, the challenge was not just to the court, and it was not just to the nobility, but to the members of the Third Estate as well. What Siez proposed was undoubtedly illegal, He was urging the Third Estate to seize power that wasn't rightfully there. It was one thing to obstruct the process of verification, but it was another thing entirely to redefine the entire process. Siez was not universally supported within the Commons for his radical idea. Yet Siez succeeded. The Commons did adopt this hardball tactic, and the reason they did so has everything to do with an element in this equation we have yet to discuss an element that helps to explain how a popular priest can unify hundreds of deputies from across the nation and have them act with a singular illegal purpose. Sies had a powerful weapon to help him whip the votes. It wasn't a Spartan laser, it wasn't a Wunderwaffel, it wasn't three red shells or a hidden blade or a needler or some tactical nuke. It wasn't even one ring to rule them all. It was something much more simple than those things. The powerful weapon Sies had was the public audience. A practice that will be both a hallmark and a curse for the revolution, members of the public had been allowed to watch the debate unfold, and indeed the deadlock unfold, for more than a month. Members of the public sat in the galleries, they loitered outside meeting halls, they walked between and mingled with the deputies when debates were adjourned. What this meant was that the public audience had power, particularly the power to shut down debate. When a deputy voiced an unpopular opinion, his opinion was drowned out by boos and protests from the galleries. When a deputy voiced a popular opinion, he could expect spontaneous cheers and applause. Arthur Young wrote... The spectators in the galleries are allowed to interfere in the debates by clapping their hands and other noisy expressions of approbation. This is grossly indecent. It is also dangerous. For if they are permitted to express approbation, they are, by parity of reason, allowed expressions of dissent, and they may well hiss as well as clap, which is said they have sometimes done. This would be to overrule the debate and influence the deliberations. Young describes a crowd which only occasionally interferes with the debate, an audience which only occasionally influences the deliberation of the Commons through negative interjections. Such circumstances might have been problematic, especially for deputies arguing against CS's proposal of unilateral verification, a proposal that was popular with the mob despite its illegality. Historian Ippolit Taine disagrees with Arthur Young, however, Taine believes the mob's ability to shut down debate and thus empower the radical leadership was far more significant than Young describes. These were not respectful and silent, but active and noisy, mingling with the deputies, raising their hands to vote in all cases, taking part in the deliberations by their applause and hisses, a collateral assembly which often imposes its own will on the other. He goes on to say... Owning to this intervention of the galleries, the radical minority, numbering about 30, led the majority, and they do not allow them to free themselves. According to Taine, the public galleries essentially had the power to silence dissent, and that included dissent to Cies's radical proposal. However unruly the galleries truly were, the public's ability to interfere in the debate had an important ramification. It helped to empower people like Siez and members of the Brenton Club to pursue a more daring and a more radical path towards ending the deadlock. Simultaneously, the presence of the public in the galleries hindered efforts to cooperate with the nobility, with those seen as being too cooperative with the nobility being shouted down into silence. Thus, the public-filled galleries fostered not only deadlock, but radical means to rectify it. Anyone hoping to stop Siez from his illegal verification process would have to contend with the galleries first. And the galleries were both vocal and intimidating. Despite the crowd, it's worth noting the view of historian John Dolberg-Acton. Dolberg-Acton argues that the third had no choice but to follow Cies down a radical path anyway. Historian Taine might attribute the adoption of Siez's radical proposal to the intervention of the galleries. But historian Dolberg-Acton argues that only a radical solution could have broken the deadlock and allowed the commons to achieve its goal of one unified chamber. Perhaps earlier such radical solutions could have been avoided. Perhaps if a compromise had been reached, a different alternative would have prevailed. But Dolberg-Acton argues that the month-long deadlock by mid-June was untenable, and thus Sies's proposal was the only way forward except capitulation. There was nothing more to be done. The arts of peace were exhausted. A deliberate breach with legality could alone fulfil the national decree. The country had grown tired of the dilatory tactics and prolonged inaction. Conciliation, tried by the commons, by the clergy, by the government, had been vain. The point was reached where it was necessary to choose between compulsion and surrender, and the commons must either employ the means at their command to overcome resistance, or go away confessing that the great movement had broken down in their hands, and that the people had elected the wrong men. Inaction and delay had not been a policy, but the preliminary of a policy. And so, the radical minority, currently led by Siez amongst others, began on the 12th of June their illegal unilateral verification.
2: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. group prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone.
0: My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms,
1: or at History of the Second World War. At this point in time, I want you to imagine you're a deputy representing the Third Estate. That you were a member of the Commons. By now, the Estates General had been meeting for five weeks. Nothing had been accomplished. The nation's finances were still in disarray. The orders were refusing to work together. The Third Estate had only now just begun verifying its delegates, but in a way that was illegal. Instead of remedying the nation of its woes, you, as a member of the Third Estate, had been helping to remedy nothing. Furthermore, the inaction was making things worse. Every day, you hear new stories of unrest from the provinces. Every day, you hear new rumours of the tinderbox that is Paris, and how close it is to ignition. You're stressed, you're disappointed, and the weight of failure, or the potential weight of failure, sits heavily on your shoulders. You're all too aware that the Estates General is proving to be a false saviour for the French people. To make matters worse, you may have to go home if the deadlock can't be overcome and you would be going home as a complete and utter failure. Think of the embarrassment in your local community if you delivered nothing. Nothing but a broken dream, a hope extinguished. You would be Frodo rocking back up to Hobbiton with the unpleasant news that you had lost the one ring to rule them all on your way to Mount Doom, and so you decided to wait for the fires of Mordor in the comfort of your own living room. Public embarrassment aside, think of how much this whole currently Pointless exercise would have cost you. You would have spent a large amount of your own personal wealth just to attend Versailles, a wasted expense. Costs aside, think of how worried you might be that potentially it's your town next to be engulfed in deadly bread riots. Perhaps your family will be targeted, relatives of the dud delegate, often Versailles, who is failing to feed his constituents and remedy the injustices of feudalism. Imagine all of those factors. Imagine all of that pressure. Imagine all of that stress. And then, imagine just how powerful the faintest glimmer of hope could be. Imagine the morale boost of a small, little, symbolic victory. On the 14th of June, two days after commencing unilateral verification, that is what the Commons received. A small, little, symbolic victory but one that delivered the Commons a very important commodity, hope. That hope came in the form of three individuals. On the 14th of June, three curés from the Charonais went rogue. They defected from their order and joined the Commons. The renegade trio had decided that they would not sit idly by with the First Estate and have their names recorded as absent while the Third verified all the orders unilaterally. Instead, they would unilaterally abandon their own order and merge with the third. These three priests were the first to break, the first crack in the wall of aristocratic power. The first defections had finally occurred. Ironically, the leader of these three holy men, a man named Jalais, was not a traditional leader of old regime France. He was simply too poor. Unlike the wealthy bishops, Jalais initially couldn't even afford to go to Versailles. Only through donations was he allowed to attend. But at this moment, Jolay's status and his wealth within the church was irrelevant. He was a leader, and in leading his two fellow churchmen across to the commons, he paved the way for others to follow. The next day, six more priests defected. The day after, ten. Momentum was swinging, undeniably in favour of the third estate. The deadlock, once steadfast, looked untenable. With more defections whispered to be coming, it was proposed that the commons make another radical move. It was proposed that they usurp more power and declare themselves to be the only body that truly held French sovereignty, the only body that represented the French people. What should this truly representative body be called, however? That was the key question. No point unilaterally and illegally installing yourself as the governing body of the nation If you've got a terrible name, you have to make sure that you get the name right. Otherwise, it will just go downhill, as demonstrated by the long list of failed superheroes. 3D Man, Fruit Boy, The Wizard, Super Slave, Lady Fairplay. Disappointing names result in disappointing things. I mean, whichever creative genius named the Canadian equivalent of Captain America as Major Maple Leaf deserves to be fed to the bears. Excuse me, I digress. The point is, the Commons sought a new name for itself, and getting the name right was important. The name had to confer both legitimacy and sovereignty, as well as convey the message that the body was no longer just deputies who represented the Third Estate. Siez proposed the known and verifiable representatives, a very logical name, I suppose, but Meunier ever the compromiser from the Dauphine, suggested something that was potentially more accurate, but perhaps a little less sexy. The major part of the representation convened in the absence of the minor part. Not to be left out of the action, Mirabeau suggested representatives of the people. On the 17th of June, a name was finally adopted. In a vote 490-90, to the Commons officially declared itself the National Assembly. For years, the king had resisted an estates general because it would infringe on his sovereignty. I wonder how he reacted to the news that a National Assembly had just been declared. In fact, self-proclaimed. We'll get to the king in a moment, for the National Assembly was a busy bee, and it didn't just stop at naming conventions. In order to secure its safety and prevent its political gains from being reversed, the Assembly continued on its binge of unilateral actions, regardless of their legality. Seeking to reinforce its position as the true holder of the nation's sovereignty, the National Assembly undertook a dramatic and politically astute move. The Assembly declared itself to be the only body that could regulate and collect taxes. Taxes, of course, being the whole reason the Estates General had to be summoned in the first place. Furthermore, it declared... All taxes were currently legal, but they were legal only until the day of the first separation of the assembly. In other words, taxes were only legal until the assembly was repressed or closed down. Since the nation was broke, the National Assembly was banking on the fact that the king and the court couldn't afford to try to suppress it. Violent unrest would result, presumably following any sort of suppression, and since the tax base would deteriorate and thus leave the government unable to pay the army that was doing said suppression, the Assembly figured that this was a savvy political play. Which, it was. The result of all this commotion was that on the 17th of June, 1789, slightly over two years after a defiant Brienne declared to Cologne that the danger of bankruptcy to the nation was not so great, the French people had a unilaterally declared and self-styled National Assembly. The revolution was gaining momentum. Before we examine how the other two orders responded to all this commotion, and more importantly how the King reacted, I want to focus ever so briefly on the 90 votes who voted against the National Assembly declaring itself just that. Not because of the 90 people that voted against it, but because of the 490 who voted for it. Many of them might, and I stress might, have personally wanted to vote the other way. This is where things get a little grey. The majority in favour of the vote implies a significant amount of support for the Assembly's declaration, but historian Ipah Tain believes otherwise. Taine reminds his readers that the key factor that enabled Siez, Mirabeau and others to push for the National Assembly's declaration was once again the public galleries, the crowd, the mob, the audience the common people who booed at the ideas they didn't like and applauded the ideas they did. Tain argues that only because of the intimidation, participation, interruption of the crowd did this vote win by such a convincing margin. The night before, Malheur had proposed to ascertain, by a preliminary vote, on which side the majority was. In an instant, all those against had gathered around him, to the number of 300 upon which a man springs out of the galleries, falls upon him, and takes him by the collar, exclaiming, Hold your tongue, you false citizen. Malware is released, and the guard comes forward, but terror has spread through the hall, threats are uttered against opponents, and the next day there were only ninety. Moreover, the lists of their names had been circulated. Some of them, deputies from Paris, went to see Bailly that very evening. One amongst them, A very honest man and good patriot had been told that his house was to be set on fire. What Tain is demonstrating here is that henceforth we need to be cautious of the vaulting results that emanate from the National Assembly. The presence and power of the crowd, its intimidation, its threats, its willingness to use violence... All of these things help popular revolutionary leaders pursue agendas which are more radical than perhaps the majority of the delegates that were actually voting for them. The presence of the crowd helps to silence dissent. It helps to empower the revolutionary vanguard. At this point in time, people like Cies and Mirabeau. And so while it may look as if only 90 deputies oppose the unilateral and illegal actions taken on the 17th of June, The actual number may have been significantly higher. Even numbers in history aren't black and white. After the revolutionary events on June 17th, all rested on the response from the other two orders and the response from the court. On the 18th of June, in a letter to Madison, Thomas Jefferson, who was the then-American ambassador, acknowledged the grim reality. We shall know, I think, within a day or two, whether the government will risk a bankruptcy and civil war, rather than see all distinction of orders done away with, which is what the Commons will push for. From the point of view of the court, those were two terrible options. Bankruptcy and civil war, or sanctioning the theft of royal power. Jefferson was correct in his prediction, though. A response from the court, and the privileged orders, did indeed come over the next couple of days. On the 19th, the clergyman moved first. A priest opened a window from the First Order's meeting hall and shouted to the crowd which is assembled below. We won! Cheers, applause and celebrations ensued. What had been won was the motion to join the National Assembly. Having only narrowly voted to remain separate at the start of May, the First Estate voted 149 to 137 to join with the rogue delegates in the Third. If the nobles and the court were intending to ignore the antics and troublemaking of the Third Estate, the decision of more than half of the First Estate's delegates to defect and join the National Assembly cemented the need for a response. As indicated by Jefferson, no one quite knew what that response would be. You may have noticed that up until this point in time, the king had been rather silent. He had not been particularly involved in the instruction of the commons, and now its seizure of power. The reason for this was not just because of his personality. It was not just because of his inability to play the role of an autocrat, to force his will upon others, to choose a policy and actually stick to it dogmatically until it was seen through. No, there was another reason. A traumatic one. On the 4th of June, the king's eldest son and heir to the throne died. He had been a sickly boy for many years, tuberculosis the prime ailment, but the fact that his death might have been anticipated did not make the event any less heart-wrenching for Louis or Marie Antoinette. The king left Versailles to grieve in peace, but peace was not what he would find. No amount of royal pain, suffering or heartbreak could have shielded the king from the realities unfolding back at Versailles. Had the prince been alive, had the king not been distracted, perhaps the events of history would be different. Perhaps the king could have intervened before the third began to unilaterally verify deputies for the entire estates general, before the third declared itself the National Assembly and laid claim to the power of taxation, before the third would be joined by more than half of the first estate. But the prince... Did die, the king did retreat into seclusion, and all these events did happen. The unilateral actions of the National Assembly and the intention of the First Estate to join them prompted an immediate response from the court. Necker, blamed by many nobles for the deadlock and the renegade activity of the Commons, finally assembled a plan, a plan which he should have assembled prior to the opening of the Estates General but a plan he hoped to help the government re the initiative nonetheless. Using the list of grievances as a guide, Necker proposed to abolish taxation exemptions for the privileged orders and permit voting by head. He, however, insisted on a safeguard for the privileged orders, such as matters for the church being left to the clergy to decide alone. The plan, however, was too little too late. A few months before, it would have been considered radical. But instead, with the National Assembly already existing, The plan was considered reactionary. The National Assembly had moved way past where Necker was, and they were sufficiently empowered through public support and defections from the First Estate to essentially ignore the Minister Messiah. Even if the Assembly had supported Necker's proposals, the court had little appetite to follow the Minister as well. Always on the outer, always treated with suspicion. The chaos emanating from the Estates General was blamed on Necker by the Queen and some Princes of the Blood. Necker was fast proving that he was no messiah, and that he might not remain a minister. Instead of listening to Necker, the king followed his own plan, a plan that would restore royal authority and the traditional Estates General. But another serious development would unfold between the 19th of June and the king's declaration scheduled for the 22nd.
3: Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes, We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all too familiar examples of greed, self dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution Podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.
2: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. Every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: On the 20th of June, the deputies of the National Assembly found their meeting hall guarded and locked. According to Thomas Jefferson, there was a proclamation posted on the door. All meetings were suspended until a royal session was held on the 22nd, until the King could address all three orders at the same time. To the deputies, this smelt like a royal coup a threat to their newly founded legislature, a ploy to kill their National Assembly in the crib. At the suggestion of a deputy named Guillotine, the Assembly of 600-odd deputies gathered in a nearby tennis court and began to deliberate on how to respond to the situation. Proclaiming the closure of their meeting hall to be the first step of royal reaction, Abbé Siez, always the radical, argued that only Paris could protect the deputies. As a result, he began building support for the Assembly to uproot itself from Versailles and relocate to Paris. Once in the city, it was argued that the National Assembly could wield the power of the people to entrench its sovereignty and protect itself from suppression. But what Sieyès thought to be a bright idea was a terrible one in the eyes of others. Some saw relocation as a step too far, and the moderate Meunier seized the initiative. With the backing of the Dauphin delegates, Meunier proposed that all members of this assembly should immediately take a solemn oath, never to separate, but to gather wherever circumstances required until the constitution of the kingdom was established and set on solid foundations. And so began the tennis court oath. The oath was led, with Bailly standing on a door that had been ripped off its hinges and converted into a table. Every deputy but one declared their oath of allegiance. As if to remind wayward deputies of the risks of displeasing the crowd, Martin de Ach, the only deputy opposed to the motion, had to escape promptly after his protest, his life endangered by the angry crowd. With the assembly having sworn its sacred vow, The tennis court oath crystallised the events of the previous days. The oath hardened the Assembly's determination to remain united, to defend the Assembly from any reaction of the court, to strive for the complete incorporation of the privileged orders. The event, which may have been completely avoided if their meeting room had not been closed, added to the momentum building behind the cause of the National Assembly, added to the momentum that was fast breaking the deadlock. But that doesn't mean the nobility, or the court for that matter, were ready to accept their defeat. Arthur Young wrote the following day after the tennis court oath. The step the Commons have taken of declaring themselves the National Assembly, independent of the other orders, and of the King himself, precluding a dissolution, is in fact an assumption of all the authority in the Kingdom. They have, at one stroke, converted themselves into the long Parliament of Charles I, It needs not the assistance of much penetration to see that if such a pretension and declaration are not done away, king, lords and clergy are deprived of their share in the legislature of France. So bold and apparently desperate a step, full in the teeth of every other interest in the realm, equally destructive to the royal authority by parliaments and by the army, can never be allowed. If it is not opposed, all other powers will lie in ruins around that of the common. If it is not opposed, all other powers will lie in ruins around that of the commons. It's for that reason the king must oppose it, or at least try to oppose it. In the eyes of the court, the third estate and its supporters in the privileged orders had gone too far. The children had overstepped their rightful place. And so, on the 23rd of June, having delayed the event for a day, the royal session began. King Louis XVI delivered his royal response to the revolutionary rebels. Arthur Young describes this situation the morning before the hotly anticipated meeting. In the morning, Versailles seemed filled with troops. The streets, at about 10 o'clock, were lined with French guards and some Swiss regiments. The Hall of the States was surrounded, and sentinels fixed in all the passages and at the doors, and none but deputies admitted. The military preparation was ill-judged, for it seemed admitting the impropriety and unpopularity of the intended measure, and the expectation, perhaps fear, of popular commotions. They pronounced before the King left the chateau that his plan was adverse to the people, from the military parade with which it was ushered in. Indeed, as the military presence which surrounded the meeting implied, the King's plan was adverse to the interests of the National Assembly. The king made his will undeniably clear, a rare event for a monarch known for his lack of resolution. In the eyes of the king, the National Assembly was both unconstitutional and illegal. Its decrees, including its claims on taxation, were null and void. The estates must sit as they had in 1614, separately. There would be no more debate on the matter. To add insult to injury, the King even refused to unconditionally guarantee freedom of the press, the abolishment of taxation exemptions for the privileged orders, and the retirement of the letters de cachet. The King's will was made known, and if the military presence outside was not enough to intimidate the deputies, his speech ended with a clear threat. If, by a fatality far from my mind, you abandon me in such a fine undertaking, I shall act alone for the good of my peoples. I shall alone consider myself their true representative. The king's counterstroke was a simple one. Everything the National Assembly had achieved, it existed no more. The oath the National Assembly swore, it existed no more. The sovereignty that the National Assembly proclaimed it had, existed no more. In fact, According to the King, it never existed in the first place. Unfortunately for the King, his words did not make it so. Chancellor Palbertine may have been the Senate, but King Louis XVI was not the National Assembly. The National Assembly did exist, and its members would instantly remind the government of this inconvenient truth. With the will of the King known, Louis left the Royal Session. The Grand Master of Ceremonies, taking over from his Majesty, ordered the Third to leave the Hall. But the Marquis de Brezy did not find an agreeable body in the 3rd. According to Abbé Grégory, the Brenton Club and their allies had anticipated these proceedings and had instructed the 3rd to stay put upon being dismissed. The Grand Master of Ceremonies could hardly believe his eyes as he watched the 3rd refuse to budge from their places. Again, he pushed the 3rd, and Bailly was the first to rise in the defence of the Commons. Then, Always spotting opportunities for dramatic effect, Mirabeau took up the mantle after Bailly and defended their insubordination. In response to the Grandmaster's questions about why the Third was refusing to follow the orders of the king, Mirabeau, the ostracized noble, delivered a speech that set the printing presses of Paris ablaze. Yes, sir, We have heard the intentions that have been suggested to the king, and you, who can carry by no means his organ in the Estates-General, you have neither place here, nor vote, nor right to speak. It is not for you to remind us of his words. If you have been instructed to expel us from here, you must ask for orders to use force, as only the power of bayonets can drive us from our seats. Think of the significance of that defiant line. Only the power of bayonets. The deputies would be all too aware of the military force they had witnessed that morning, of the troops under the command of the king, of the hundreds of bayonets just outside the door. Yet they decided to challenge the king anyway. They decided to play a very high-stakes game of chicken. Mirabeau and the National Assembly were betting the king's show of military force was a bluff that he would not risk throwing the nation into chaos by suppressing the assembly. And the bet paid off. Louis was not a man to follow the plan, even if it was his plan. When the king heard of the Thirds' disobedience, he shrugged and said, Let them stay. Louis's response encapsulated the reality that France was an autocracy without an autocrat a nation with a self-styled absolute monarch who could not rule absolutely. By failing to enforce his will, Louis conceded the permanency and indeed legitimacy of the National Assembly. Permanency and legitimacy that would undermine and eventually remove his own. The events of the day are summarised perfectly by historian François mignet On that day, the royal authority was lost. The initiative and law and moral power passed from the monarch to the assembly. Why the king backed down is still a mystery. Why he did not resort to military force, like the queen and some members of the court were urging, is unknown. Perhaps it was his fickle and non-committal personality. Perhaps the king, still grieving his dead son, was disinclined to spill the blood of the people's representatives. Or potentially, it had nothing to do with the king's personality at all, and everything to do with the king's reality. Perhaps Louis perceived royal authority to be in tatters already, and believed that the royal troops could not be relied upon. The royal troops were indeed a legitimate problem for any would-be plan to strike back against the upstart assembly. Within a couple of days of the royal session, Thomas Jefferson wrote that the troops began to quit their barracks, to assemble in squads, to declare that they would defend the life of the king, but would not cut the throats of their fellow citizens. He stated that there was no doubt on which side they would be in case of a rupture. The ambassador of Saxony also recorded this deterioration of discipline within the armed forces, who were now loyal to the crowd and their national assembly. On Thursday, the soldiers of the regiment of French guards left their barracks and scattered across Paris, bands of them going into all public places and shouting, Long live the King! Long live the Third! Fearing a general revolt, no one dared to stop them. He continues, The loyalty of the foreign regiments is also becoming suspect. The bourgeois are seducing them, and the Swiss have assured their hosts that if they were ordered to march, they would disable the mechanisms of their muskets. With the King's troops unreliable, and the National Assembly refusing to disavow its oath, there was little the court could do. The monarchy watched helplessly, as the 151 members of the First Estate joined the 3rd on the 24th, the day after the Royal Session. Within 24 hours, the King had gone from proclaiming the National Assembly illegal to watching the First Estate swell its ranks. The following day, the same day that the French guards abandoned their barracks in Paris, 47 liberal nobles joined the National Assembly, led by the king's own cousin, the Duke of Orléans. Another 70 or so liberally-minded nobles, including Lafayette, had desires to join, but were waiting for their order to vote to do so as a whole. They didn't have to wait long. On the 27th, the king gave way and ordered the deputies to sit as one. Arthur Young records his perception of the events of the day. The whole business now seems over, and the revolution complete. The king has been frightened by the mobs into overturning his own act of the sentence royale, by writing to the presidents of the orders of the nobility and clergy, requiring them to join the commons, full in the teeth of what he had ordained before. It was represented to him that the want of bread was so great in every part of the kingdom that there was no extremity to which the people might not be driven, that they were nearly starving, and consequently ready to listen to any suggestions and any que vive for all sorts of mischief, that Paris and Versailles would inevitably be burnt, and in a word, that all sorts of misery and confusion would follow his adherence to the system announced in the Sentence Royale. The unreliability of the troops, the populace's politicalisation and demand for bread, the determination of the third to sit united with the other two orders. All of these things Force the king's hand. Had Louis promoted them, had he prompted them, had he led this revolution, had he created his own new constitutional government, then perhaps Arthur Young would have been correct when he stated that the revolution was now complete. But King Louis had never seized the initiative. He had always been reactionary, even before the grief of his son. The unwillingness of Louis to go along with the plan was always remembered by the nobles who would seek to foster counter-revolution, by the moderates who sought to consolidate it, by the radicals who desired to progress it. Without the blessing of the king, the revolution was always going to be fragile, a battleground for factions and coalitions of competing interests. This battleground would produce some great works. A constitution, multiple constitutions in fact, a declaration of the rights of man, even eventually the abolishment of slavery but it would also produce the terror, civil war, foreign invasion, religious persecution. Arthur Young may have been right when he stated that the king was frightened by the Bob, that is, after all, a trait he shared with many deputies. But Young was wrong to say that the revolution was complete. It was anything but. Thank you for listening to episode 10, the National Assembly. But now that France has a National Assembly, how long will it last? While the King has endorsed the three estates sitting as one, he has done so because he has had no other choice. The troops under his command were too unreliable, which is why he summons more from the frontiers. The question on everyone's mind was a simple one. Would the King permit the National Assembly to exist, or would he try to quash it? Before you go... If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History, if you're a fan, if you would like to dabble in some more, well then there is something you can do to help that take place and that is to tell someone about grey history. If you know someone who you think would be interested in a history podcast that explores the grey, please tell them about it. Thank you for listening and have a great day.